Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free HealthMate app. With tools at hand such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Emmanuel Shallot, CEO of Dashlane. Dashlane is the safe and simple way to store all of your passwords in one place. It conveniently saves and autofills all of your login information, making logging in simple and secure. Emmanuel brings Dashlane more than 20 years of experience across a few industries, including tech, cybersecurity, and media. He first started out with a PhD in computer science with a focus on navigation algorithms for Mars exploration rovers. He then served as CEO of CBS Outdoor in France before founding and leading Flipside.com, a leader in online games. Most recently, Emmanuel has finalized Dashlane's Series D and has grown the company into one of the fastest growing technology companies in North America. The solution now has more than 50,000 five-star reviews across iOS and Android app stores. In this episode, Chad and Emmanuel discuss the importance of protecting your digital identity in today's world, how Dashlane is doing this differently, and how Emmanuel has built multiple companies over his career. Emmanuel, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Are you calling in from New York now or where are you at? I am calling it from New York. From if I look outside the window, it definitely looks like New York City. So yes, that's where I am today. Very cool. Um, I'd imagine your day-to-day is a bit hectic, a bit all over the map and world. So if I were to catch you on any given day and you know we met for the first time, how would you introduce yourself and how would you describe what it is you do? So I'd introduce myself by telling you that I'm Emmanuel Shalit and that I'm the CEO of Dashlane a tech company based in New York, Paris, and Lisbon, which was created to help people at home and at work solve some of the most fundamental problems they have with their digital identity, such basic things as storing, using, managing all the digital accounts they have in a way that is both simple and secure. And when we created this company eight years ago, our hypothesis was that this would become a bigger and bigger problem that more and more people would have. And the good news is that was the right hypothesis. I think the scope of the problem is very interesting because at a glance, we all have this problem. But what's the, uh, what's the magnitude and what's the scope of this overall challenge or maybe arbitrage of uh, time savings that you, know, you could achieve here? So maybe I'll start with an anecdote, which is because it's related to your question about the scope. The average American or the average citizen of uh, you know, any developed countries has about 200 different digital accounts because everything in our lives has taken a digital life of its own. And so 
you, me, we have these 200 digital accounts. And if I take a parallel for a moment, imagine that you make 200 copies of the keys to your home and that every time someone comes to deliver something, you just give them a copy of the key to your home because it's more convenient. You don't have to be there. Now, chances are nobody would do that because that's obviously a very bad idea. In the real world, nobody would do that. The reality is that in the digital world, almost everyone does that in the sense that almost everyone uses the same password everywhere because that's simpler and more convenient. First of all, the problem has a large scope because everyone has it. Second of all, the, the, the size of the problem is exploding because we have more and more accounts. But third of all, because we need to interact with these accounts on more and more devices, our computer at work, our computer at home, our mobile phone, our tablet, the inconvenience becomes such that it's even more pressure to go for the worst solution possible, which is to give the copies of the keys to your home to absolutely everyone. So the problem is truly exploding on the consumer side. And because it is exploding on the consumer side, bad actors, whomever they are, are taking advantage of it. And that is why our new cycle from, you know, Capital One yesterday to whatever the last massive breach was the week before, these breaches are happening because sophisticated actors, you're not talking about a kid in a garage anymore. You're talking about, you know, either hostile nation states or large crime syndicates spend millions or tens of millions of dollars exploiting the fact that most people have given the copies of the keys to their digital homes to absolutely everyone. So it is a problem of planetary proportion whose magnitude is exponentially growing because we have more devices, more accounts, and more and more aspects of our lives are digital. Yeah, it seems to be a problem where the optionality for bad actors is increasing at a greater rate than the options for good actors, right? Or is that not the case? Are we ahead on the cyber front or do you feel like cybersecurity is uh, still the Wild West? The latter. First of all, the Wild West is a great metaphor, actually, because if you go out of you know, the place you're in right now, you go to have dinner somewhere, you can expect that regardless of whether you are carrying a live weapon or whether you are a martial art expert or whether like the fact that you're able to defend yourself or not is not a factor in general in your ability to go out and have dinner without the risk of being killed or mugged. That's the situation in the real world because the real world is not the Wild West anymore. We have such things as law enforcement and law and police and, and you know, general set of things that protect all of us sort of equally. In the cyber world, that is actually not the case for a number of reasons. But the first one is that laws and governments have a very, very hard time doing anything in that world because that world essentially escapes their jurisdiction. The notion of borders just does not exist in that world. You can't really build a wall unless you disconnect completely from the internet. Sure. And so, yes, it is the Wild West in that sense. So that's the first reason why the battle is very hard. The second reason why, the, why today, yes, bad actors are in a great position to take advantage of that is that 
Like when I'm giving you that example of the 200 copies of the keys to your home, you're like, oh, but of course, I should never do that. But, you know, until I've, I'm able to have that conversation or somebody else is able to have that conversation with you, most people actually don't realize that they are in giving copies of the keys to their home to absolutely anyone they meet without, you know, even thinking about it. And so there is a massive awareness problem, which today bad actors are taking advantage of. And the third reason, which is sort of the reason for our entire existence, is that as an individual, whether it's an employee of a company or as a consumer, there is a lot of that that is not under your control. You know, if you give your data to a company and if, if that company later gets hacked, you as an individual, like, there's nothing you can do about that. You, you can't take back in the way the world works today, in the way digital identity works today. You can't take that data back, not today. But there is one thing you can do as an individual. The only thing that is under your control is the ability to create some form of containment, the ability to say, you know what? I am going to use a completely different password on each and every account so that maybe one of my accounts is going to be breached, but the damage is going to be limited to that. But the main vector bad actors are using today is this idea that they're going to steal your key from one of these 200 accounts you don't even remember you have, not because they care about that account, but because they're going to leverage the fact that 95% of people, if not 99 actually use the same key everywhere. And so wow. the one thing that is under your control as a consumer is to say, well, you know what? There is going to be from now on a different key everywhere. That is why we exist as a company, is to provide a simple solution to people to actually have that. That is the only thing under your control. And, you know, there is a, a law of nature, which is if, if somebody is going out there to steal a bicycle, and there are 10 bicycles you know, along the wall, they're going to steal the one bicycle that is not attached to you know, some, some fixed point. So even though what we do doesn't solve the entirety of the problem, it makes you as an individual such a harder target that people are not going to even bother about you as a target because you are, the cost of going after you is going to become too prohibitive if you sure. do something like using a product like ours. So I'm curious to know, how do you think about this product uh, for your users? Are you thinking that this is primarily something they purchase as a productivity app? Is this a security? Is this uh, an insurance product? Or is it all of the above? Great question. Well, it depends because our, our, our user base is actually pretty broad, both in terms of size, more than 12 million people uh, use Dashlink, but also in terms of motivation what we see is essentially either of two things. People coming to us because they have had that aha moment about, oh my God, I can't continue to give the keys to my home to absolutely everyone. And I've heard from a friend from an ad for like, oh, there's actually a solution and it's much simpler than I thought. So they come to us because they have this concern about their personal cybersecurity and they understand we solved the one part they can impact, and then they discover we do much more, which is we transform their experience of interacting with the digital world because it's not just about their passwords. Now, suddenly, when they have to provide other types of information like a credit card and an address and a phone number, we automate all of that. So they, they discover the extraordinary convenience of using a product like us. So that's one journey. But another journey is 
someone just gets tired of having to constantly enter the same information of having to, oh God, I don't remember which password I used on this account. I'm going to have to click on forget my password again. So they come to us not so much because they are concerned about the security, but because they find this interaction with the digital world to be so frustrating that just looking to automate that. And they do that, they come to us for that, and then we show them, oh, look, you're using the same password everywhere. What if there was a way to actually not do that? And they're like, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to do that too. So both are true. Both journeys exist. And both are like the reason why people start and continue to use us. Sure. So Emmanuel, if it's okay, I would love to shift the conversation more into the company culture. Uh, I think your journey as an entrepreneur, as an executive, as a technologist is fascinating. And I would love to learn more about your philosophies behind company building and how you're thinking about culture at Dashlane. I've heard some anecdotes, some great stories about, you know, you getting a tattoo at a hundred, no, at, excuse me, at a million users. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think you might have even promised a second one at 10 million users. Um, so, yeah, let's just start. Let's start there. It's there, too. I could, uh, <laughs> if we're not recording the video, I would show it to you. So, let me start by saying that before Dashlane, so my background was, you know, when I started my career, I started in technology as a, you know, software engineer. And I wrote code and I thought I would do that all my life because it, there are very few things in life that are as exciting and fulfilling as actually building something with software. But then, you know, my life took a different course because I started to realize that there was another thing in life that was fascinating, which is getting a group of people together who individually are not able to solve a problem, but when you put them together and you frame the problem the right way, as a team, they are able to solve a problem that none of them are able to solve individually. And that, that second thing is equally fascinating and exciting. And so I went along that journey from you know, being a software engineer to the point where right before the age of, uh, of 40, I was running a branch of a very large company with you know 10,000 employees reporting to me close to $2 billion in revenue. And I thought I had reached sort of the, the pinnacle of my career already at 38, running a multi-billion dollar organization, tens of thousands of people reporting to me. And then when I, I, I got to that point in my career, I, I realized my job had I had completely lost touch with the teams that were reporting to me. Because, you know, when you're in an organization with 10,000 people report to you, you know less than 1% of that team. And I completely lost touch with products because that organization was building and selling thousands of products and I didn't know any one of them in any deep way. And I had no idea who our customers were. My job had become completely political. I said, you know what, I, I, I completely missed the boat, the sweet spot for me is small companies because that's where I can be close to the teams and the products and the customers. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that mistake again. From now on, I'm going to be the CEOs of small. And for me, a small company was, you know, 500, 1,000 people, 2,000 people. And I did that for a number of years. And one day I met the three co-founders of Dashlane that had this idea of solving digital identity. And it was not even a company. It was three people. But what fascinated me in that adventure is that even though the company didn't really exist and the scale of what they were doing was essentially zero, the scale of the problem, as I told you, was going to be so big that it 
was worth a try. And, you know, eight years ago, there were four of us. Today, we are north of 200, and we are probably going to hire 200 people in the next 12 months. So we'll be 400 a year from now. And when you start from scratch, the front, before that, in my roles, I was hired as CEO of relatively large organizations that already had a culture, that already had lots of things in place. And your ability to change things over a tenure of a few years is very limited. When you start a company from scratch, you have a unique opportunity to apply all the things you've learned before, to do all the things you were never able to do before, even though you were the CEO, because now you're starting from scratch. So you get this unique chance to do it right in terms of culture, for instance. And so when we built our company from zero to 200 today and 400 a year from now, we did it with one thing in mind, which was we want to build a company of people that fundamentally have one thing in common, which is that they care about solving this problem. Because if they are aligned around that, then a lot of other things are going to fall into place. It will not matter that we are in you know, three different cities around the world, that we have 15 different nationalities in this company. If at the end of the day, the one thing that brings us together is we all care about solving that one problem we talked about earlier. Sure. And I'm curious, what is the uh, team member journey and the employee journey like for people who discover Dashlane and then end up joining and becoming a great culture fit, or maybe they already are a great culture fit? What's that process been like? If Are there any patterns there that you're seeing? There are patterns that have evolved over time. The journey of, you know, employee 10, when we were nine and we got to 10, <laughs> is very, very different of the journey of employee 201 who you know, sure. just joins today. What has not changed is the purpose. It's the same, but we are able to do it at a much bigger scale today. What has changed, I would say, is two things. Because now we are growing much faster and hiring many more people. You know, last month we hired 20 people in one, or actually in July, this month we just hired 20 people we have had to become much more efficient at onboarding people, which means that rather than onboarding them individually, they now go through classes together. All the people that have joined in July are going to learn the same thing at the same time so that we don't have to repeat. So we've had to create much more scaled processes to onboard people because of the pace at which we, are, we, we have to do it in order to, to meet our goals. But fundamentally, our ability to assess whether someone is going to be a culture fit or not, or the attention we pay to that has not changed because today it's an even bigger, like when you are 10 and you're hiring one more person, if you make a mistake, the chance that that one person that takes you from 10 to 11 completely kills the culture of the company is not too high and you, it's a problem that you can solve if you make a mistake there. Today we are 200 or let's say 190, we're gonna be 400 in a year, which means more than half of the people that are gonna be at Dashlane Curve from now are not here today. And so as a result, the risks we take with our culture are much, much bigger today. And we've had to become much more disciplined at identifying either before we hire people or after we hire them, 
whether they're going to be a fit or not. I think what's interesting is the discipline that you and your team are applying is from years being in the trenches, doing other startups, founding other companies. And uh, I would love to go back to the beginning and kind of talk, maybe uh, maybe start with flipside.com uh, and uh, just hear how that came about. Yeah. Was that your first foray into entrepreneurship? Almost. I mean, it was the second one. When I was still in school, I created a software startup that only existed for a year or two, but Flipside was the first one at scale. And you know, Flipside was an entrepreneurial story that happened during the first, the, the crazy days of the first internet bubble. Where, you know, at the time I moved to San Francisco, it was 1998, 1999, and you were able to grow companies at amazing speed with infinite amount of capital without even having a business. It was literally about, you know, you're a dot-com doing something that is remotely relevant and that can attract attention, you know, next thing you know, you're, you're public. And there's good and bad about that. And there was a lot of bad and there are, there are lots of companies that didn't survive, but there are also some incredibly powerful companies that were born during that era. So the journey at Flipside, Flipside ended up not surviving in, in that form. It was an online, free online game business that was entirely based on advertising. But I learned one very important thing at Flipside that has, that has allowed me to succeed in other jobs after that. It was because Flipside was a company that grew very quickly in the internet bubble, but then had to downsize very brutally when the bubble burst. The one thing I learned in that part of the journey, one thing that saved me from, I'd say, moral bankruptcy when we had to go from, you know, 400 to 100 people in a matter of a few weeks is that we were able to do that. I cannot say successfully, but we were able to do that in a way that I was still able to look at myself in the mirror in the morning because when we went from zero to 400 incredibly quickly, we were always incredibly transparent and very disciplined every week about this is how the business is doing. This is what's working. These are the numbers. And, and when the markets turned, we were very, very transparent about the fact that companies are now valued completely differently. Transparency means that the day we announced the entire company at the time, most of us are going to be gone in a month. The people who left on that day came to see me and said, you know, well, first of all, thank you because you're, you're treating us fairly in you know, the severance and everything, but also more importantly, thank you because you never lied to us about the journey, where we are and what might happen. And it was a big lesson for me that nothing is more powerful than the truth when you run a company. I think that's the uh, the foundation of every culture that lasts, right? To the extent that they can uh, maintain that philosophy, they, they survive. Um, Absolutely. And that's why, if, I don't know if you can read what's on the wall here, but if you can, you know, our, our seven values at Dashlane. Yeah, let's dive into them. Which is, which is transparency actually comes from my experience at Flipside because I learned the hard way that that's the only reason why we were able to morally survive that very tough time. Very cool. And, you know, let's take the next step in your journey. I, I might be jumping over a couple here, uh, but when you were chief strategy officer of Vivendi Universal Games, I would love to dive into that time in your career as well, because that's a, if I did my research correctly, the holding company for Blizzard, for Sierra Entertainment and many other notable game studios. And I think that's fascinating because often we think of, you know, companies like Berkshire as being 
models that no one, you know, aside from Alphabet, maybe decides to emulate. However, the game studios models and holding companies always fascinate me. So yeah, I would love to dive into your experience there. And uh, what was it like being the uh, CSO of uh, a holding company like that? Great question. So first of all, I want to say that the, the, the digital games industry has changed a lot since I was in that industry. So a lot of the, some of the things in my experience there are probably not applicable anymore because at the time games were distributed on CD-ROMs or DVD-ROMs. They were physical products that were sold through stores. But, well, the first thing I can say, and I can put that in my sort of brag box, is that without mentioning numbers, the value, I, I was essentially the one who recommended to Vivendi the acquisition of the games and the education software assets of Sendent Corporation. And, and that, in that was where companies like Blizzard and Sierra and Knowledge Adventure and all of that. And the first thing I'm proud about is that these assets, a few years after we acquired them, were valued at between 10 and 20 times the, the price we had paid. Even though at the time of that acquisition, people were like, oh, Vivendi is crazy to pay $800 million for this. It's, it's not worth half of that. Well, the reality is that four or five years later, it was you know, close to uh, between eight and $10 billion. The second thing I learned during that journey is that game development is very expensive and very risky because it is extremely hard to predict whether a game is going to be successful or not. And it is extremely expensive to build great games. And so we, you can approach it in two ways. When you're trying to compete in, an, in, in a, in a hit driven industry like that. One way is scale and portfolio approach, which is you don't know what's going to win. And so you try a lot of things and you're very disciplined about killing things early enough when you start getting a, an intuition that something is, is probably not going to work. But, but you count on your portfolio approach where a little bit like a venture firm, you do 10 things. And if one of them is a big success, the success of that is enough to compensate the losses of the other nine. That's one way to approach it. And you can build very large game holding companies that rely on this portfolio approach. But you also see another model succeeding and for me Blizzard, and I, I, the, 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 I was fortunate enough to interact with you know, the founders and the management of Blizzard during that time as the completely opposite approach of when they were working on a game, they would never finish it on time, they would never finish it on budget, but it, would, it never mattered because whenever they released something, it was always the biggest hit in the industry to that point. And it's raw talent and focus that delivered success absolutely every time, which is the opposite of the portfolio approach, but it also works. And I remember that anecdote, the first time I visited the studio of Blizzard and Mike Morheim who was at the time the president of Blizzard, I was asking him, so what is the recipe for your success? And he was telling me, well, and he was at the reception of the building of Blizzard and he said, so you see this person, she's the receptionist. She's also a hardcore gamer. What we all have in common at Blizzard is that we are whole hardcore gamers, not casual gamers, hardcore gamers. And we understand that so well that when we build a game, we know it's going to be a success. 
there was there was one kind of a model as opposed to another one. And another anecdote I have is that I remember at one time at Vivendi we had a strategic decision to make about investing in a massive multiplayer online universe. And one of the projects on the table was World of Warcraft. And the other project on the table was a project based on a license we had acquired for the, the Lord of the Rings franchise. And we had to make a decision as a company as to which one we would invest on because we couldn't do both. And I, I will always remember that meeting because I, I have, like many people, I've read Lord of the Rings. Unlike many people, I've read it probably 40 times. I can quote entire pages by heart. And I'm, I was such a fan when I was younger of that book that I was actually convinced it was a terrible backdrop for an online universe because the story was written already and it was impossible to change it. Whereas World of Warcraft had two incredible assets going for it. First of all, the talent, the raw talent of Blizzard. They had never missed a shot. And there was no story written. It was a completely open-ended universe in which players would be able to add. Fortunately, we ended up as a company investing in World of Warcraft rather than the, on the other one. But I think it's you know another decision I'm very proud of. I think that's a fascinating example of a situation where you have IP that is uh, wonderful in both cases. However, the IP in one case, in the Warcraft example, people already associate that with gaming. Whereas the Lord of the Rings example, people hold that sacrosanct and many people like, yeah. So that, that is a very interesting philosophy to which to approach you know, IP challenges and investment challenges. I'd be curious to know too, in your time working in games and in the game studios, have you seen any existing studios or holding companies kind of adopt both those models? Was your holding company one of the first to embrace studios that had that portfolio approach as well as uh, the Blizzard approach? Yes, uh, it was probably one of the first, but I'm sure it's a complex question because there there is actually a continuum. Like It's not like absolutely one or the other. You could say in, in your portfolio, you also have one of these like sure. incredibly powerful studios that never misses a bit. I don't want to say things that are actually untrue because this dates back to, you know, 20 years ago now. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I have a sufficiently precise recollection of that. But in the end, when you look at where value has been created, the, the, there was clearly a point where the value of Blizzard on its own was more than the value of all of the rest because of how successful they had been in World of Warcraft had been as a model. Sure. Because that's also when the model, the economic model shifted from, I buy this box of software that I pay 50 bucks for one and once only to a subscription model where I pay 20 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month for a service, which sure. obviously has completely different economics. So I think that shift from, box software to subscription has had a massive impact on the economics of the industry. Definitely. And uh, are you excited where the industry is at now in terms of uh, the explosion of new free-to-play MMORPGs? Do you think the industry is headed in a, a good direction or a positive one? You're not going to like my answer. Is the, the, the honest answer is I don't know. I have lost the ability to have time to actually be a player myself. And so I've, I've become a much more casual observer of the games industry. Now I see it more through the lens of my kids. My, my son is nine and a half. And the discussions we have are more about, you know, how addictive Fortnite is 
and how much of an impact will it have if you start playing too much of it or if we should let you play it or not. And, uh, and sure. But the other thing that has emerged in that industry, which didn't exist at the time, is there is a fascinating byproduct that didn't exist, which is watching other people play has become a form of entertainment that didn't exist at the time. And I think that's a fascinating sort of second order development that I think was clearly not anticipated. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I think that the games industry is, uh, it's a really exciting place to starting to blend with education, with media, uh, with entertainment. It's uh, it's uh, really exciting times. I'd imagine too, you don't have too much time to pay attention when you're on the road to 100 million users. So let's talk about that. So you're at 12 million, give or take now. What's that journey look like for Dashlane to get to 100 million users? It's a journey that's about two things. One of them is related to our product. And the fact is that to build a product that 100 million people use is fundamentally different from building a product that a few million people use for one reason only, which is that a product that is simple enough to be used by 100 million people is incredibly simpler than the kind of product you build if you only have a few million people using it. And so the first challenge we have to solve on that journey is to make our product, like today our product is the best product in its category, but it's way too complicated for my 103 years old grandmother to use it. And so the paradox is that simplicity is extremely complex to achieve and simplicity is extremely expensive to achieve. So one big element of that journey is investing really large amounts of capital and human intelligence and design and engineering in simplifying and simplifying and simplifying the way our product solves the problem so that it becomes more approachable to a larger portion. Because what's fascinating and what we're trying to do is that absolutely everyone needs our product but we recognize that it's still too complicated for most people. Sure. That's the first part of the journey. The second part of the journey, and I think I alluded to that earlier, is that, think about it this way, there are four billion people that interact with the digital world every day. And all of them, one way or another, means something like Dashlane. The reality is that at most 50 or 60 million use anything, whether it's a browser or Dashlane, to help them with their digital identity. 60 million out of 4 billion, that's 0.5%. We are in a world where 90, or 1.5%, so 98.5% of the people that actually need a product like this, in reality, don't even know. They know about the problem because they experience it every day. They have absolutely no concept of the fact that there is actually a solution. So the second part of the journey is how do we actually tell people that the problem they are faced with every day, which is a bit different for every person, there is actually a solution. And so that part of the story is much more about marketing and thought leadership and virality and finding ways to tell people more and more and more people that there is actually a solution. And we are the only company in that space that actually has the resources to do that, both in terms of capital and team. We just recently 
She joined two days ago, hired the chief marketing officer of Lyft. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Uh, before that, she was also the chief marketing officer at Sonos. She's one of the most successful brand builders in the world because at the end of the day, we have to build a brand that becomes synonymous in the consciousness of, of people with the problem. I think that's a, a very pivotal moment. Are there any examples from the existing marketplace of companies that are category kings or companies that create new categories that you respect from a brand standpoint? Well, you know, in a sense, Joy Howard was, you know, our, our CMO, she did that already once, uh, or she did that several times. But a good example is what she did at Sonos. When you think about the, the whole category of product that Sonos represents, there's a category that didn't used to exist. And that is now in actually quite a number of homes that has become something people expect, like these incredible devices that blend all of your sources of music. That is a category that didn't exist a few years ago and that now has become something pretty standard. Now, I'm not talking about the fact that now, Alexa is competing with them and Google, like the competitive situation there is complex. But I think that's a great example of category creation that was done through brand and through marketing. I think the space we are in is a space in which the category has not been created yet. And clearly our ambition is to be the company and the brand that creates and defines that category. And in the consumer space, I mean, for sure, there are lots of examples. You can, from ride sharing, Lyft, which is the company where Joy was before joining. Like, think about all the apps that have that have now taken over a part of your life, and that have created categories that didn't exist before. There, there are so many examples. I think the thing that is unique about our opportunity is that the category we are looking to create is a category that is relevant for. Absolutely every one of the 4 billion people I've mentioned earlier. I'd be curious to know too, in what sense do you see this as a mission to kind of make the internet, do you see it as a mission to make the internet safer, you know, more reliable maybe for consumers, or maybe that's the wrong word. What's your kind of motivation at the, at the end of the day and the beginning of the day? I want to be very careful in my answer because the notion of, oh, I built this company because I want to change the world has been so overused. I don't know, I'm going to build a, I don't know, a juice company and I'm going to change the world through juices. That I think entrepreneurs in general have to be careful about the claims they make. Personally, I like changing small things that in the end end up having a big impact. For me, the, the, the role models are people that do things in a very humble way that end up having a very big and lasting effect. And so I'm not going to sit there and tell you, yes, we created Dashlane because we wanted to change the world. What I can tell you is we have identified something that at first when we started was viewed as a really small problem that very few people cared about, something that would go away on its own, that you know, somebody would figure it out somehow. And that eight years later, not only is the problem not going away, but it's becoming bigger and bigger, as we said at the beginning of this. And so... I think what makes us relevant is that the scale of the problem is exploding, that no other solutions have actually popped up. And I'm more and more credible every time I say that actually, you know, don't wait for something to come and fix that for you. That just ain't happening because the trends are very clear. And that at the end of the day, 
the way we measure our success as a company is to say, well, one thing we know for sure is that when we look at one person before they use Dashlane and after they've started using Dashlane, we are very, very confident to say that once they've started using Dashlane, they are better off. They have a more enjoyable online experience and they are much safer. And so our measure of success is the more people use us, the more we will have had an impact on this problem. And remember my example in the beginning. It is fundamentally unfair that in the digital world, because the government can protect you, you're only as protected as how knowledgeable you are. It's like, back to my example, it's like the digital world shouldn't be a wild west. We're not going to solve all of the problem ourselves, but the bigger we are, the more lives we're able to impact, the prouder we are of what we've accomplished. And at the end of the day, when I get to the end of the, the dash lane adventure, for me personally, that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to say, okay, how many people have, have been able to help in all of this? And if it, even if it's only 100 million out of the 4 billion people that would need this, I can look back at this and say that's the one thing I've done in my life. Professionally, I'm the most proud of. I love that. And I would love to touch a little bit on uh, two more points here because I think your company is well positioned. It's a great product and you've chosen partners uh, from a capital standpoint uh, and from a board member standpoint, I think in a very strategic way. So uh, I would love to hear a little bit about what's your philosophy for choosing investors and board members and how have you incorporated that into the team at Dashlane? So there is an element of it that is not necessarily a choice, but that is for sure a pattern, is that most of the good things that have happened to this company happened because we crossed paths with someone who was already a user of our product. So let me give you a few examples, two recent examples, but there are many, many more in the past. I mentioned earlier that Joy Howard, the former chief marketing officer of Lyft, just started a Dashlane two days ago as our chief marketing officer. It's easy to understand that between Lyft, a publicly traded corporation that worth several tens of billions of dollars, and Dashlane, there is a difference in scale. And there are many reasons why Joy decided to join Dashlane, including the fact that she's incredibly passionate about these issues of digital rights and privacy. But, but another reason was that she had actually been a user of Dashlane for four years. And that was a big factor in her decision, but that's not the only example. In May, when we also announced that we had raised this very large 110 million round from Sequoia Capital, one of the things I said in my blog post, I talked about that. I said, you know, one of the decision factors, it was only one, but it, it's always there in, so Jim Goetz is the, one of the most visible investors on the planet, one of the most successful ones. Legendary, yeah. Yeah, legendary investor. He led the round for Sequoia. But G and I, we'd been meeting now for three years and he was always coming to see me in New York and saying, you know, is now the good time for Sequoia to invest in Dashlane? And the thing that kept him interested in our company, or one of the things that was the fact that he'd been a user of our product for years. So, I don't know if that's a strategic component, but that's, again, that's for sure a pattern, which is we are fortunate enough that we work on a product that everybody needs. And oftentimes the good things happen to us because we are meeting with a partner 
we are meeting with an investor, we are meeting with a potential new hire who is already a user of our product and who gets it. And that's not true with all products, but in our case, that happens to be there. I think beyond that, uh, building a board or building a team is you know, complicated. You often get it wrong. But we've been very fortunate that in our journey so far, we've managed to both at the board level and I'd say at a team level to build a group of individuals that at least, like we have very diverse opinions about lots of business topics we discuss, we argue a lot, sometimes we even fight. But the one thing we all agree about is the purpose of what we're trying, like we are convinced that what we're trying to do is meaningful, that it's a huge opportunity, both business-wise for investors, but also for us as employees. And, and so that is the thing that binds us all together is the goal, we have a very common view of what the goal is. Yeah, I, I think that shared vision and a shared passion for the product demonstrated by use over a long period of time, that's a, that's a fascinating philosophy there. So I'd be curious to know, uh, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. I'd be curious to know, what does the next year look like for you and the team? You mentioned doubling in size. Is there any final thought or uh, maybe hint at the future of Dashlane you can provide for us? Doubling in size, and here I'm talking about the team, is a means to an end. Why are we going to double in size? Because the nature of the problems we have to solve on the product front on the marketing front. These problems are so hard and so complex and, and we need to solve so many of them in parallel that we just need a much bigger team to, to go there. And by the way, if that sounds like a lot of people, we are talking about a problem that every one of the 4 billion people that use the internet have and that today has no solution. So it's not like if it was a simple problem, somebody would have fixed it already. So it's actually a really, really hard problem to solve because we need to build something that works on top of other people's product. And to do that in a way that is simple enough for everyone is really, really, really hard. So yes, we, we, our team is going to grow a lot because the nature of the problem we have to solve is a really hard problem, which nobody has really figured out. But that in and of itself creates its own set of problems because when you're growing your team that fast, earlier in your life as a company, your problem is, am I going to survive to the next round? Am I going to prove enough things? Am I going to reach enough milestones that I can raise the next round of funding and continue to fight for another day or another year or another year? Now we have entered a new phase in our growth that many companies go to, which is capital is not the limiting factor anymore if we you know, do a good job at growing our company. It's actually the opposite. It's our ability to deploy that capital fast enough to generate enough acceleration. We're not limited by money. We are limited by our ability to spend money. Like anybody can spend money in a stupid way, but our ability to spend money in a way that is smart, that is efficient, and that actually delivers growth and results. And it's a very different problem to solve. It's not do we have enough money, it's we have how do we use it in a way that delivers results. And it takes a different set of skills than the, the type of skills you need in the very early days in the adventure. And so we, it's about evolving our, our skill set, our culture, our team to solve a, a new class of, of problem. 
That's exciting. Uh, Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. And uh, we'll have to get you out here for round two when we're back in the studio and uh, if you're out here in the Bay Area. So thanks a lot. You had fantastic questions. Thanks a lot for your time. Happy to do that any other time in the future. Take care. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.